exciting news. Tickets for the Conference on Religious Trauma, Court 2023, are now available. Also, if you're interested in an ad-free version of the Divorce and Religion podcast, come join me over on Patreon. Links for both are in the show notes. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Divorcing Religion podcast. I'm your host, Janice Selby. I'm a registered professional counselor and a religious recovery consultant. Today on the Divorcing Religion podcast, we will be exploring adoption, particularly religious adoption, with all of its sticky tentacles and residue, especially for those adoptees who outgrow their adoptive parents' religious beliefs. Here to share about her own experiences is Tatiana Russell-Chip, who was adopted from Russia into a Canadian Christian family. Tatiana is a multi-talented atheist who is also, in her own words, mega gay. After growing up in a religious home, Tatiana became a pastor and ministry leader for 10 years. After significant spiritual abuse, she deconstructed her faith altogether. I reached out to Tatiana after reading a religion news service article in which she was quoted saying, the primary voice I always heard about adoption growing up was a really Christian narrative with a nice happy storyline. I believe Adoptee Remembrance Day is a key day for adoptees to get our voice back. Welcome Tatiana Russell Chip. It's nice to have you here. Yay! Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited <laughs> to be here. I'm impressed by technology, me being in BC and you being all the way over in uh, New Brunswick, and I can just see you and hear you clear as day. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Um, thanks for joining me today. I think this is a really interesting topic that I don't see many people bringing up or talking about. It's kind of one of those taboo, hush-hush uh, things. Um, Very and so. Yeah. And so I wanted to have you here to say what you think about it. So tell us a little bit about your story. Absolutely. So I was born in Berbijan, Russia, which is just northeast of China. Um, it's it's about as far away from Moscow as you can imagine. And Russia is huge. So, um, so I was born there. Um, I now know that my bio mom chose not to keep me because of some, uh, well, my bio dad was abusive. That was the mm -hmm. primary reason why she chose mm -hmm. not to keep me. So she gave birth to me and she never saw me again. I was left in the children's hospital there for nine months. And at nine months old, my adoptive parents came from Newfoundland, Canada. And uh, they they traveled there yeah, in July of 98. And um, they were there for two weeks, did the court things, got all of the, the legal things finalized. And then we came back to Newfoundland altogether. So that's where I grew up. That's where I did most of my life. I uh, moved to New Brunswick. Uh, once I graduated high school, that's where I did Bible College of Ministry, and that's where I live now. Wow! Did you did you have siblings? Did your uh, adoptive parents adopt other children as well? They did not. I was an only child, which you I absolutely <laughs> loved. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! That's really which is something. pretty crazy now because I know that that biologically I have a couple of half siblings as well as one full sibling. So it's it's weird now to shift my brain from only child mode out of that. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, what was it like growing up in your family in Newfoundland? Mm -hmm. So my uh, my dad grew up Salvation Army. He played mm -hmm. the trombone in the oh. brass band. You and, cannot get uh, much more Salvation Army than that. 
I know it's perfect. Hey, it's really cute. I remember growing up, he used to play the trombone at the Christmas Eve service at church, <laughs> like silent night on the trombone. It's really cute. <laughs> and then um, my mom grew up Pentecostal. And so when they got married, well, just before they got married, they were doing kind of like a Baptist thing. And then once they moved back to my mom's hometown, they were going back to my mom's home church. So that's that's kind of the environment that I was raised in. My grandparents moved literally like three houses down the road when I was four years old. So I got to grow up with them really, really close to me, mm-hmm. as well as my uncle who lives with them. So it was kind of like one wow. big family unit that mm-hmm. that kind of functioned. So when I think about my upbringing, it's... Um, it's incomplete without them being added into the picture being drawn. Um, and so grew up kind of going to church every Sunday. Um, my, my parents have been together now ever since 88. So what is that? 34 years? Mm-hmm. Nope. 44. That's a long time. However many years. <laughs> however many years. Yeah. And um, they're still together and they love each other a lot. They are like one of those couples that's like super obsessed with each other. Puppy wants to say hi. Hello, puppy. <laughs> and um, yeah, so so that was kind of the environment. We did church every Sunday. We prayed before meals. We prayed before bed. Um, but primarily, like my parents, the way that they kind of understood and expressed Christianity, it was very... Um, Jesus exhibited good morals. So there are like good takeaways on how we should behave as human beings from the Bible. And there are some good things to take away from Christianity as a whole. They weren't super intense. They weren't super, um, they weren't charismatic. Uh, They really didn't fit into the church environment that I grew up knowing. And so for the the most part, when it comes to like my religious upbringing, it was mostly um, inspired by pastors and youth pastors and church leaders who who had a lot a lot of influence in my life that said though my parents um they used a lot of language growing up about how you know it was god's plan for me to have been adopted and you know they sang the song before i knew your name by bob carlisle uh during my christening and the whole premise of that song is like before i knew that you existed you know god had a plan for us to love you and you know whatever and so so that was primarily the language that i heard growing up but had a pretty stable home life uh, did well in school, not a lot of conflict. I'm pretty conflict avoidant. Um, so so for the most part, it was fairly normal. Yeah, oh, that's uh, parts of that sound idyllic. I mean, yeah. parts of it sound just really having the extended family around. Your parents weren't like too kooky as far as all the um, <laughs> Pentecostal uh, stuff can go. Um and there was stability there. So, I mean, those all sound like really good things. Now, at some point, you decided you wanted to go uh, into ministry, and really, your relationship with God was kind of the central focus uh, Absolutely. of your life. So, pardon me, how do you get from there to here? <laughs> right. <laughs> Quite the journey. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I um, I went to a church camp when I was 12. And I, I feel like that's such a pivotal moment for so many people as they're telling their their Christian kind of story. Yeah. But for me, I went to church camp kind of in this place where I had uh, 
just become pretty severely depressed. I was like a deep kind of philosophical thinker and I just, I could get into it, but my brain just didn't understand what the point of life was. I just, mm-hmm. I just saw it as super meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so going to church camp, I kind of went there with this expectation of, you know, if this God thing is real, I can see it giving real meaning and purpose to life. But if this God thing isn't real, then I'm kind of heading down the right trajectory in terms of, you know, having a worldview that says that nothing really matters. Um and so at that same time, I'd been involved with a guy where all this kind of stuff was non-consensual. So I go to church camp mm-hmm. and of course the, the morning time speaker, well, the nighttime speakers, they were all, you know, intense. It was like, come up and get slain and speak in tongues. And, you know, it was really, really dramatic, but the mornings were like teaching. Um, and so all of the teaching was on like, um, sexual purity and, you know, um, gender and God's design and all that kind of stuff. And so I remember pastor man getting up and speaking and he's like, you know, if you watch porn, this is really bad. You're going to go to hell. You know, these are the, you know, the wages of sin is death. And, you know, if you're having sex outside of marriage, this is, this is what's going to happen. And it was just like really like fear-based, obviously shame-based preaching. And I'd never really heard that before. And so that's the first time that I really remember feeling shame. Like I remember it just like, and at the time, People were telling me that that was God, that that was Holy Spirit, that that was conviction, that that wow. was, you know, good for me to feel that. Now, obviously, I'm like, okay, that that was not anything spiritual. It was just shame. And so, anyway, with that, of course, then came the solution. Well, hey, if you don't want to feel that shame, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to confess your sins. You need to, you know, whatever. And so, of course, I bought in because I was like only makes sense. And so with that, I mean, of course, there were like calls to go into full-time ministry and that made sense to me. If I was going to buy into the the God thing, why would I do it in this like half-hearted manner? That just didn't make sense to me. I'm kind of pretty like um, all or nothing. Like I I totally buy in or I don't to anything. And so of course it was like, if if God is this creator, if God is controlling all things, if this is an issue of life and death and eternity, then like this like half-hearted approach that I saw modeled by my parents, I was like, that really doesn't make sense to me. I, I need to like really say yes to this thing. And so I did. And um, I came home from church camp and I was super intense. I was telling all my friends about the rapture and telling them about spiritual gifts and all kinds of intense stuff. And then I was just kind of known as the church kid. That was that was my identity from that point onward. Um, once I hit high school, of course, I had friends that were partying and drinking. And of course, I had to do my backslidden teenage years, which honestly, primarily at the time, a big part of why I made the life choices I did was so that I could have a dramatic testimony because that was such a big part of Christian circles is your story so boring if you just say, I've loved God my whole life. So I, I remember like distinctly, like part of the reason why I was making the decisions I was, was so that I could have a more dramatic coming to Jesus story. And so, um, I know what a mess. So, um, then eventually I make some really poor life choices and I end up getting in trouble with the police. And that was kind of, honestly, it was like a parallel moment 
to exactly how I felt as a 12 year old. Um, Hello, puppy. Unhappy puppy. <laughs> um, so it was really, really parallel to my 12 year old moment, and that I was feeling shame for these new life choices I'd made in high school from the drinking to the partying to the guys to the, you know, whatever. And um, so it was really, really parallel between this high school moment and this, this middle school moment that I had. And again, I had this new dramatic coming back to Jesus. You know, my life obviously goes to crap when I don't have Jesus in my life. I obviously can't keep it together. I'm so broken. I'm in need of a savior, all that kind of stuff. So I, I come back to Jesus. And again, it's that same commitment. Well, Jesus, you're going to have my everything. So of course that means full-time ministry. That means, you know, yeah in any way I know. Um, and so I chose to go to Bible college, ended up going to Kingswood University, which is in this small country town in New Brunswick, just like 5,000 people. Um, anyway, just kind of like a funny spot. And uh, I, I did my ministry degree there. It was a Wesleyan school. So it was my first time kind of hearing anything about the Wesleyans, really wasn't familiar with that. And it was the first time that I'd been around people who didn't think women should preach or teach. And it was my first time being around people who thought speaking in tongues was complete crap. And I was like, whoa, this, it was like this real, like, mind-blowing experience because it, I grew up, the town I grew up in was 98% Catholic. Um, there and most of them were like Christmas Easter only kind of people, and so like I never really had challenging uh, religious discussion with anyone who thought any differently than I did until that point. So that was like a pretty critical moment. I end up then going into full-time ministry in the house of prayer. Um, and the house of prayer made a lot of sense to me. I'd grown up really, really influenced by IHOP. Um, I watched their live streams all growing up. I, I always felt like they kind of taught me how to pray. They taught me how to worship. They taught me how to love the Bible and how to like really be intense. And we, we so better explain IHOP because the first yes. thing that comes to mind is International House Pancakes. of Pancakes. <laughs> Right, that, good not point. I hop. We mean you're talking about International House of Prayer. You got it, which is in Kansas City, Missouri. It is a 24 seven uh, global prayer movement where the the whole premise basically surrounds Revelation five seven, which talks about the the prayers of the saints and the bowls being filled and worship and harps and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, it's this idea of combining both musical worship and intercession and prayer to basically like move the heart of God and build kingdom. Um, and so it, it, it really, um, in the whole house of prayer culture is almost like this monastic lifestyle. That's very, um, that's your world. That's your, everything is the place of prayer and worship, uh, fasting, uh, being in the house of prayer. Like that's, that's it. And, Again, that made sense to me because that's about as intense as it gets. Like I, I lived and breathed and ate prayer and worship and fasting. You know that that was all I knew, and that made sense to me because if God was real, He deserved that level of uh, sacrifice, of intentionality. Of question: Did yes. your parents, did your parents have any concerns as you kind of went farther and farther down the fundamentalist rabbit hole? Yeah, that's a great question. My parents 
are so bent toward um, being supportive that I heard a lot of, if you're happy, great. And I, I could hear the apprehension in their voices. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I was like, they just don't get it because the way that they understand Christianity is just not the way that I do. <laughs> and so to me, it was almost like they're just um, baby Christians or they're just, you know, they just, they don't get it. It wasn't so much that this might potentially be like a dangerous or harmful ministry. It was more so like, I just thought they didn't get it. Like why most Christians don't pray for six hours a day. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it just, it isn't, uh, it isn't on most people's grid. Um and so apprehensive, but not outwardly opposed, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I was there, um, honestly, in a lot of ways, it was everything that I wanted. I loved that level of intensity. I loved, you know, the music. Music's been my thing. And, you know, I got a ton of, you know, leadership opportunities and was honestly thriving in a lot of ways. Um Basically, over time, I started noticing a ton of spiritual abuse all over the place from, Mm -hmm. you know, just even in the midst of prophetic ministry and using these prophetic words to manipulate people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there there was a really, really strong dream interpretation culture at the House of Prayer that I was at. And it seemed like the only person who could interpret dreams was the director. And so... (laughs) His the way that he would interpret things almost always was you're called here and this is where the glory of the Lord is and it's not anywhere else at any other church or any other place. Um, in the midst of that, uh, basically, COVID happened in 2020, and um, rather than pulling back and calming down in light of a global pandemic. Of course, there was no adherence to COVID protocols and we went intense. We did outdoor church so that people could drive in with their cars, which was like setting up a stage and setting up all the gear and tearing down and doing all this stuff, still, you know, running all the ministries, all the things, gathering, you know, 50 to 100 bodies in a small room with no masks and just hoping that the cops weren't going to come. It was just, it was intense. And so, um, in the midst of that, there was so much, um, fear driven talk. Um, so in, in the middle of like a, a prayer room, uh, set director would come in, he'd take the microphone and be like, Hey, everyone, I just found out that this church in Alberta had their doors shut because they weren't listening to COVID protocols. And then it would turn into this super like fear-based, well, we need to keep pressing in. We need to keep, you know, whatever, because this is, <laughs> this is what it looks like to love Jesus in the face of persecution. Right. And, and, and they're primed, primed Christians are primed for persecution to expect it, to see it everywhere and so i mean they were they were hugely uh excited during the the pandemic like because yeah yeah. we're we're having to do it in secret and we have to be quiet and we can't you know can't let the cops know it just is so ridiculous right and it's it's prime time for revival because in the face of the church being persecuted god's gonna move so it's like this hope-filled scary intense kind of weird thing and um so that that was all happening 
I eventually got super burned out. At the time, I was leading multiple ministries. I I was serving as a full-time missionary. I wasn't paid staff. No one was paid staff. So I was raising all my own support. I was doing administrative work, scheduling work, was in the preaching, teaching rotation. It was just, there was a lot happening. So I went to my directors and I said, hey guys, can I please get a two-month sabbatical? I need to chill out. Um, I, I had been bedridden migraines, neck and back pain, couldn't move, didn't know what was going on. I was like, it, it must be burnout and stress. Like I, I just need to relax because I literally can't do anything. And um, so they said, well, we'll think about it. We'll ask the Lord. <laughs> and they got back to me like two weeks later and let me know that it, you know, it was okay for, for me to take some time off. And uh, during those, <laughs> those two months, I uh, I had a friend recommend to me the book No More Faking Fine by forget her name now but it's it's this Christian book and the whole premise of the book is like grief has a place for the Christian it's it's actually really biblical and for me especially being in such a charismatic joy filled healing deliverance all that kind of stuff world hearing this kind of language was so refreshing to me because I uh, I started to realize like, oh, I have a lot of stuff to grieve. I have pain from my whole life that I've just kind of masked with, but God is good um, from my adoption relinquishment all the way up into uh, car accidents I had while I was in full-time ministry or, you know, whatever. And so I'm reading this book. I'm really getting this language and understanding for grieving of course, this is bringing up all my adoption trauma. I'm working through so much. And I basically what I was going through started to influence not only me, but the people that were around me, other missionaries who, you know, one of my friends there, his brother had passed away when he was really, really young. And he was like, oh my gosh, I never dealt with that. And then he starts grieving that before the Lord in like this really, you know, like Christian way in the place of mm -hmm. prayer and journaling and whatever. But that was the worst thing we could have done. It turned into, you know, sermons. There was one sermon that was called Grief Leads to Unbelief. And I guess it's true. It's kind of funny now because it's like, yeah, I guess you were more prophetic than I thought you were. <laughs> but it was like there there were these like direct accusatory sermons about real life stuff that we were experiencing. And in the midst of that sermon, uh, the director, he said, you guys don't know this, but many, many years ago, my wife had a miscarriage. Um, but I want you guys to know that we held on to the Lord during that time, and we did not grieve at all. We did not shed one tear because in the kingdom, there is no loss. And that was his point. And that, wow. like, I'll, I'll just, like, I'll never forget that because that was such a clear moment about how they view and see the world. Um, wow. And so, of course, from there, it was downhill because I couldn't help it. I was, I was like, in snowball effect with dealing with my adoption trauma primarily. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm really, really grieving what I'd lost, grieving the fact that I never had a chance to really ask questions growing up, grieving the fact that I always felt like I had to view my adoption story through this really beautiful God gospel lens. And I really never got the chance to say like, wow, it really sucks that I don't get to know my the culture 
that I was born into. I don't get to know the bio family that I was born into. I don't get to know that native language. I don't get to know the customs and, you know, just all these things. And I was like, this really sucks. I'm really sad. I'm feeling a lot of loss. And I I started reading um, The Primal Wound, which is like, they call it the adoptee Bible incredible book and that book of course took me down a whole deeper rabbit hole uh, regarding my trauma and um it was consistently met with like you're just not letting god be your father and it was mm. so horrible for me because i was often um the most spiritual one in the group i was the one who you know trusted in the Lord the most. And I was like the most intense and all these things. And so then for people to be like, you're not doing good enough because you're actually being honest with yourself was honestly like it messed with my brain. Like I was like, Mm. I'm just trying to be honest and integral with what's happening here before the Lord. And somehow that's bad and wrong. Mm-hmm. And and our director was consistently saying, you know, like, oh, I didn't know my bio dad growing up, but I just let the Lord, you know, fill those voids and whatever. At that same time, um, there were other dynamics from, I, I started really wrestling with the infallibility of the word of God. Basically, I, I was asking Holy Spirit to come and comfort me in the midst mm-hmm. of all that. I was mm-hmm. like, come and just give me some measure of peace please like mm-hmm. do something. I'm not asking you to fix my problems. I'm not, you know, nothing. Just bring me peace. And he never came here. I was mm-hmm. up at like five in the morning, sobbing, just being like, Holy spirit, I would love to feel your presence. And there mm-hmm. was nothing. And so I started going and asking all my like spiritual leaders, all the people that I knew in my life, all from different, you know, religious, you know, different denominations, mm-hmm. all from different kind of worlds. And all of their responses were the same in that they all were like, you're expecting something from God and you shouldn't be. And so what that did was it broke down something in my brain where I was like, okay, but like Jesus says that it's better that he should go so that he can send the counselor. Like, you know, Psalm 116 talks about how like you incline your ear the second that I I speak, Mm -hmm. like, why are you not coming? This is breaking down. And so Mm -hmm. what that did was it started taking the, the Bible and it started crumbling before me where I was like, it can't not not return void because it's returning void. So like, this doesn't make sense anymore. I was just like, I was breaking down at the same time, had these other dynamics where, um, because we were obeying COVID protocols, we ended up visiting a piece of property um, that was an hour away from town. Um, It was this huge, I don't know, a ton of acres vineyard, where the plan was to quite literally build a commune and move mm-hmm. there and live mm-hmm. there and build the house of prayer there away from society where, um, you know, we wouldn't have to get building permits. We'd just oh, wow. place trailers and mm-hmm. we would um, grow things and bring them to town and sell them. And it was mm-hmm. like messed up. And I was like, oh, ding, 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 red flag. Like this is really culty. And like, that was like where I like really realized it. It had to get to that extreme before I I really saw that. Mm -hmm. And so I said to the director, I was like, this feels really culty. And that was pretty much the moment where my relationship with him really, really broke down. uh, Cause he didn't like that kind of pushback. He would do this face. That was like, that's what he'd do. And he didn't like what you said. 
<laughs> so <laughs> that was his face, needless to say. And um, it, at that same time, like one of the missionaries was was raped by the director's son on church oh, property. Oh, no. um, it was horrible, violently, violently. It was awful. Oh. And um, she was she was blamed. Um, even though she was completely the victim and she was met with, Hey, our son has gone through a lot because of his upbringing of us being in ministry. And he's had a rough go with the church. We'd really love for you to forgive him and be his friend so that he can see Jesus in the midst of this situation. And that was just like, so messed up and so hard to watch. So all of these things are happening. My best friend at the time was kicked off the stage on a Sunday morning because she wasn't being expressive enough, though she was like three months pregnant and vomiting all morning. Like <laughs> it, it wow. literally just like got escorted off. Mm. And all of these things are happening. She was told that she was like a racehorse that belonged in the back of the pack so that the the more intense racehorses could bring the breakthrough. So it all these things were really starting to obviously like open my eyes to, wow, Mm -hmm. this is a really toxic environment. Mm -hmm. And that house of prayer experience, like a lot of people are like, okay, well, that's obviously just a really messed up place, but the church in general is not all like that. And it, for me, it was like, yeah, that's true to an extent in that the details are different, but my upbringing in, in the church that I grew up in, it was all the same flavor of abuse. It was still spiritual abuse there. It was still spiritual abuse in at the Bible college that I went to, at the churches that I served at. And this just happened to be the pinnacle. It's not mm-hmm. that this was any different than anywhere else. Um, and so with that, I was like, okay, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go to Upper Room in Dallas. I'm going to go just rest and be before the Lord and heal because I've had, you know, a pretty shitty last couple of years. Um, During that time, though, basically everything blew up. The House of Prayer lost their funding. All of a sudden, all these other spiritual abuse accounts came up. Like, it, it just, it really blew up. And the way that I've described it is I felt like there were like hot coals in my hand that mm. I just had to let go of. So even though I didn't want to let go of my faith. I didn't want to let go of, you know, the belief system that I always knew and and all of that normalcy. I was like, I it literally hurts to hold on to. And so with that, I was like, I, I'm just dropping it all. And so I've kind of left myself in a place where I don't really know what I will pick back up in the future um, of that. And maybe none of it, maybe some of it, maybe something totally different. I don't know. Um, but for me, as I left the church, I wanted nothing to do with something that had harmed me so much that I had so much pain from. Um, so, so I just, I dropped it all. Didn't know that I was going to do that, but I did. And, um, outwardly the language that I was using was, I, I was saying like, I'm an atheist and a humanist. Like that was kind of where I, I was landing and that was the language that I was using. I don't even know if I'd check that off on a form if I was doing it, but to me, that language makes sense, at least for now. Um, with that, after after I left, um, it was like, man, I didn't realize how much wanting to live for God and honor Him was impacting what I allowed myself to do and not do. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of that for me was my sexuality, where 
I, like I I didn't probably had an idea that I was gay or at least attracted to females for a lot of my upbringing. But for me, it was always like, God is worth saying no to anything else. Like it just, it doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. I, I will deny myself anything for the sake of trying to love Jesus. Like I just, I didn't care. And that was part of it. And so after leaving the church, I was like, I have the freedom to explore these things now. Like mm-hmm. I just don't have to be bound by that. Like it's, it's not a moral issue. It's just a religious issue. And so once once I could do that freely, like very shortly after I left, like two months after I left the church, I met my fiance back. And um, very exciting. <laughs> and uh, we got engaged a year later. And now we've been together for a year and four months. And that's really special. And it so is. that's that's kind of where the story is at at this point. Wow. Wow, that there is a lot to unpack there. That's an incredible journey that you've been on. Uh, one thing um, that stands out to me is when you kind of had your big uh, conversion experience when you were around 12 and you were at Jesus camp or, you know, Christian camp, however we want to say it, because mm-hmm. Christian camps are a really big um, deal. Yeah. And when we are uh, adolescent, we still don't have the ability to critically evaluate truth claims, particularly when they are being delivered to us by leaders, by adults, by people we look up to, and in a highly emotionally manipulative and volatile situation. And I think it is absolutely inappropriate uh, for anybody to be pressuring <laughs> children and youth and people in any type of vulnerable life transition to be pressuring them to make a lifelong commitment to anything, whether it's, you know, joining the Sea Org in Scientology for a billion years, or whether it's uh, promising and signing a covenant or vow or going up to the front and promising before everyone that you'll be the Lord's veiled handmaid, uh, you know, that you'll serve Jesus um, yep, forever totally. and ever. Because you just, it's so unrealistic and it's such a ridiculous pressure. So I, I like to encourage people and just let them know that they, it's completely acceptable right now in this moment for them to reject any vow, covenant, promise, um, even if they were baptized. They were at a point of um, psychological and spiritual duress. They were under duress at that time. And you're allowed to reject it. You don't Absolutely. have to abide by those things that you promised. And then even as you went on and we're talking about uh, oh, the intensity of being involved in the house of prayer and all those things. And they just fed you and fed you. And it felt so good to be involved, to be completely devoted, totally sold out, as we used to say in the eighties, um, mm-hmm. for, yep. for Jesus. Uh, and, and then of course you're surrounded by people who think that is tremendously admirable. So you're mm-hmm. not hearing from critical thinkers on the sidelines going, uh, oh, wait a minute. Like I have some. I have some questions here. So you're running with it. You're just, cause you're thinking this is fantastic, but it's very, uh, unrealistic and make believe, you know, Absolutely. what it's, what it's based on. And then we devote years and decades of our life to service. I got air quotes going on serving in this way. Um, and then when we do start to question, we're thinking, 
holy shit, I just g- gave how many years of my life to this? I could have been exploring, traveling, living. I didn't have to have this intense guilt. Uh, I can't, I'm just, like you said, it's not a morality issue. It's a religion mm-hmm. issue. And that Absolutely. can be another part of the grief. You mentioned the grieving process that you started going through by reading that book. I'm so grateful that you, that you read that, um, book because grief is very real and toxic theology thwarts the grieving, the mourning process. Absolutely. Um, it's very, it's significant. And Christians tend to say, we don't mourn as the world mourns. We don't grieve mm-hmm. as the world grieves. And that is so unhealthy and can lead to all sorts of issues. And at the Conference on Religious Trauma in 2021, I had a humanist chaplain who gave a presentation, Dr. Terry Daniel, and she was talking about how difficult it can be when the chaplain is in the room with the dying person who doesn't believe, but their very intense religious relatives come in and they're trying to bash them over the head and force mm. them to say the sinner's prayer with the last breath that they that right. they have. And then the person does die and the believers are left in this awful tortured state of thinking their loved one then is suffering in hell. For right. all eternity. It's I just have nothing good to say about it. It's really intense mm-hmm. and awful. So now I'm back off my soapbox. Thank you so much. <laughs> um and I would like to know more about your your thoughts on the and your experiences of grief around religion and uh, not not around adoption. And then how did that impact your relationship with your parents who mm-hmm. love you and whom you love? And then you were having to possibly talk to them about some pretty uncomfortable things. Definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, growing up, like I said, it wasn't really a conversation that we engaged with a lot. Um, It was almost like unspoken, I think, where for me, I could just tell that it made them uncomfortable. So I kind of chose not to engage in it. It was kind of like this perceived thing. I was never told like, hey, don't ask about this. I always knew I was adopted. Um, We grew up, like I grew up celebrating Tatiana Day, which is like a Russian holiday on the 25th of January. Um, I grew up with, you know, matryoshkas in my room. I grew up with Russian flags. Like there are photos of me, you know, I always knew, but in terms of like any conversation beyond that, there was nothing. Is that because you had to be grateful to your parents for oh, yes. adopting you? Like that's, even though they didn't say you must be grateful, that's what you internalized. And 100%. So it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I can remember just thinking like there was always this framework of my, I would probably be living on the streets addicted to drugs or something if I hadn't been adopted. And now I get to live in this nice middle upper class home and no God. So that's awesome. You know, it it was very much this life would be awful had this not happened to me, but thankfully thankful to them, thankful to the Lord, thankful to, you know, whatever. So yeah, absolutely. So the conversation really started to open up for me more so in recent years where I'm here working through my religious trauma, working through my adoption trauma as I'm on a sabbatical. And what I found literally right away, as soon as I started 
like thinking like, oh, I'm feeling a lot of grief about this. I was like, I am terrified to have any kind of conversation with my parents about this. Like I am scared to death. And I think the primary thing, like where it, what it really boils down to is, you know, obviously the initial wound that I have is one of abandonment. And so it's like the only, like the next worst thing that could happen to me is now for the people who did choose me to abandon me, just like my, Mm -hmm. my first mom. Mm -hmm. And so like there, I think there was this fear of like, if I start telling them that I'm feeling any other way other than grateful, then they're just going to be like, you're bad. Mm -hmm. And the relationship would be lost. And so I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know what to do with that fear, but I knew I had to keep processing through this stuff. I knew like, I don't know. There was just like this deeper place in me that was like, I I just have to like forsaking all else. I'm doing this. And um, what I ended up doing was I had to ask them for five weeks, the rest of my sabbatical to go without having communication with them because I felt like I couldn't have direct contact with them and wrestle through this stuff at the same time. They were just incompatible uh, because of like the shame and the guilt that I felt. Um, And so that was obviously horribly difficult for them. They had like a really, really, really rough time with that. And it was also exactly what I needed um, at the same time. Wow. It's definitely been quite the process. Like even since then, that was 2021. It's like a year and a half after that, where I feel like we're still rebuilding and I have to remind them like, hey, I still want you in my life. Because realistically, that was a big blow to them mm-hmm. where they were like, oh, you don't want us. So it's it's kind of been this weird dynamic mm-hmm. to wrestle through and kind of like build relationship, but almost in like a new way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's a sensitive topic in that my dad is very like he's super passive. Everything's good all the time. Like we're just fine. And Mm. so for him to bring up something that's like emotionally jarring and intense, he's like, shut down. Mm. Um, And then my mom is super emotional. Mm -hmm. Uh, She just like feels. And so the second we talk about anything, she's like, and then I shut down. Because the second that she's emotional, I'm like, too much. Mm. Um, So then mom is crying and dad and I are stonewalled. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, that's that's pretty much how it is. Um, You know, they they want to be involved. They want to understand. Um, I think for me, I have to still, though, be really protective over how much I do share and when I do just because when I don't feel like they immediately get it I feel misunderstood and judged Mm. which is this like kind of wrestle in that they're trying to understand and I know that they are I know that you know their heart is as good as it possibly can be and at the same time I I also need to protect myself in not feeling super Mm -hmm pissed off and discouraged after every conversation with them. So that's kind of where it's at right now. Um, I recently uh, got reunited with my bio sister back in November. Wow. And 
yeah, it's been quite the journey recently. Um, and so, you know, they they know the details. My mom has cried over almost everyone. My mm-hmm. my dad's been like, love you. And yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's about it. How has it, um, what's the crossover been like with you also unpacking uh, your religious trauma and the religious conditioning that were a result of being adopted into a religious family? So you're, you're, do your parents also know that you are no longer a believer? They do. Um, and so it's kind of tricky. Most of my mom's family, they they obviously grew up in the same environment as she did. A lot of them are pretty not happy with the church and have been very, very vocal about that. So as I was leaving the church, I think it was pretty like triggering for my parents and grandparents and that they were like, okay, does this mean that you're going to become this like savage aggressive anti-church person just like the rest like of the me? family oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> and like me now <laughs> um i think that was like really their fear um mostly because like in a lot of ways like i was the the prime child you mm-hmm. know what i mean like it's uh, there are only two grandchildren myself and my cousin and she is gay and not a christian and so i was the favorite grandchild you know all these dynamics are happening right and uh so when i left like i i was not quiet um i was like everyone knew i i made sure to have those conversations either via text or call just so that like hey i don't want you to see this on social media or hear it from someone before you hear it from me this is where i'm at it's just not something i want to be a part of and um my grandparents didn't have a lot to say my parents were like okay that's fine. We understand to an extent and we support you. Can't you like find God in like a healthy church environment though? Mm. Um, can't you um, be gay and love God? Because like they're liberal enough that mm-hmm. they feel like, you know, you can be gay and be a Christian. And um, yeah, I was like, for me, they're they're just irreconcilable right now. Mm-hmm. Um but for them, they were hopeful. And I think the primary reason, at least for my mom, is, and I think the primary reason why she even holds on to Christianity in the first place is she loves the idea of this really cute heaven where all the people that she loves will be gathered together yes. for the rest of forever, mm-hmm. having a nice tea party. Like it has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with, you know, mm-hmm. worship. It has nothing that, nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm going to have my cute little afterlife. Yeah. And so I think that was almost like the, the main thing for her is, okay, there's, there's this potential now that this vision of life after death, that's been really comforting for me speaking for her is actually not going to happen because Tot's not going to be there. Right, right. And that's the existential crisis that is so huge um, for so many people and what actually keeps a lot of people from questioning or doubting at all. Absolutely. One um, important statistic uh, from the Religion News Service, from the article that I quoted that you were in uh, earlier, and it says, a 2013 study conducted in Minnesota found that adoptees were four times as likely to report a suicide attempt than non-adoptees. A year earlier, a study of more than 18,000 adopted Swedish children found that 4.5% of adoptees struggled with drug abuse compared to 2.9% of the wider 
population. So it seems that to to completely try and wash over or ignore the fact that there is grief that that accompanies being an adoptee uh then we're not paying attention to to the truth and uh we're not um actively trying to support this demographic that could use some additional support has that been your experience you you now must be connected to a wide variety of uh adoptees i'm guessing because you were in the religion news service article Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, realistically, I think that those statistics are obviously super accurate because of experience, like the experience that I've had validates mm -hmm. those um, realistically. And I think the primary reason for those statistics is the fact that we've seen in the in the narrative for adoptees since ever, adoptees are the last ones to have the voice. Um, the government has a strong voice regarding adoption. Um, adoptive parents have a decently strong voice regarding adoption. Bio parents have somewhat of a voice regarding adoption. And adoptees are always left at the bottom without a voice, typically because mm -hmm. they're a child uh, in, in most of the situation. And so if, if, you're, if you learn to be voiceless from the very beginning, how are you supposed to become an 18-year-old adult and just all of a sudden have a voice and exercise that like, mm -hmm. no, you're probably just going to be silent for the rest of forever. And to think that that's not going to um, impact the way that you share about the fact that you're hurting or really right. sick or mentally ill or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like, of course that's going to impact all of those other things. So whether an adoptee uh, happens to unalive themselves because of their adoption trauma or because they're just really depressed and are not getting help, the reason is the same. They're voiceless. They've been mm -hmm. silenced since mm -hmm. always. And that, I think, is kind of where, like, that's where I really resonate with in that, like, even when I was in the church, prophetic words I used to get all the time were like, taught your voice. The Lord's going to use your voice, your voice, your voice. And it always made me super insecure because I always felt this, like, unworthiness surrounding my voice. And it makes sense. That was the narrative. Like, let, let the adoptive parents talk about the goodness of God in the story of adoption or about how there's this crazy parallel between the gospel and, you know, us being able to cry out, Abba, Father, and God adopting us and we're no longer orphans and the way that that parallels with the adoption story or, you know, whatever. And it's it's dangerous and harmful. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I definitely... I definitely resonate with that, even when it comes to the substance abuse piece. It's like, realistically, if you don't have a voice to speak, you have to medicate somehow. Mm -hmm. Of course mm -hmm. you're going to use, of course you're going to, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And once that becomes not attainable, the the first statistic usually comes true. Right, right. And the intense, the intense uh, pressure to just be happy. Just be happy. You, we've rescued you uh, from from horrible circumstances. So now your place in our family is to reflect gratitude um, to all of us, so that we can also feel really good about ourselves and right. what totally. we've done. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I wonder. Uh, in I imagine that um, many, if not most, adoptions do take place in religious families. 
but I don't know. Maybe there's a whole uh, heap of just as many secular folk that are out there um, just adopting children, trying to give them a, a place to live without this ulterior motive uh, that religious families definitely have. They're using it as a way to grow the kingdom and sometimes adopting multiple um, children. And uh, there sure can be... Um, you know, problems that come up for everybody in large families, whether they're born into the family or adopted in. Uh, the bigger the family, sometimes there are a lot more secrets and these sorts of things. So Definitely. I think it's important to talk about that there is a, um, there can be, I don't know, can you say downsides or there are issues related to adoption that we need to pay attention to first and foremost, um, listening to the adoptees and what they have to say. Absolutely. I talked to someone this past week, actually, and he's an adoptee, but his background, he didn't come from an evangelical home. And that was the first time I had a conversation with an adoptee who didn't come from an evangelical home. And it was fascinating um, to, to just hear about that and hear about those dynamics. But I think like even in, in my house of prayer times, uh, one prayer focus that we often had was uh, we prayed for life, right? And of course, that was the whole, you know, abortion topic. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, like the, the language that we would always use is pray positive prayers. So you wouldn't pray against abortion, you would pray for adoption. Mm -hmm. And so regularly in the house of prayer, I would say like once a week, there was this two-hour set where the focus was, we're praying for Christian people to rise up and stop being lazy and hurry up and go adopt kids because kids deserve a home and kids deserve, you know, especially a home that loves God. And so, you know, like if you're hearing that messaging, of course there's an agenda. Of course there's an evangelical push that says this is what God would want. God would want these random Chinese, African, Russian, Ukrainian, whatever children to grow up indoctrinated. Of course, that's what God but, would want. But definitely, God would not want them to be adopted into a Muslim home or into oh a, you know, a, a Jewish home or some other a Hindu LGBTQ. home. <laughs> right, that's right, because their God is completely made in their own um, image. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and you really faced a triple whammy potential of abandonment then because there was um you had been relinquished at birth because your mom didn't feel it was a safe environment then you uh lose your faith lose your religious beliefs which you were raised to have and then you embrace your identity as a member of the lgbtq um, two-spirit community and mm -hmm. those to take those to your parents and say, by the way, I now want you to know I'm none of the things that you uh, that you hoped I would be. So how, how are you going to be with that? Like that must have just been such a terrifying state of vulnerability mm -hmm. to open yourself up to. That's incredible and so amazing that you were able to do that. And you've been able to retain still a tender relationship uh, with these people who do love you so much and who don't understand, they can't understand mm -hmm. um, everything that you've gone through to be who you are. Definitely. Wow. Your story is amazing. And I hope that 
I hope that it's been encouraging for someone who's watching or uh, listening today. We yeah, want everyone you. to know that they they can have a voice and they should have a voice, that they are entitled to grieve and mourn their losses and explore this huge world. They don't have to be, you know, it's a buffet table of life and religious fundamentalists in particular want us to starve to death at that buffet table and only eat one dish for the rest of our life but it doesn't have to be that way mm-hmm. you can you can try and have all these different experiences uh as long as you're not hurting others not hurting yourself you're allowed to try everything so thank you for being here and being a voice i do want to recommend folks might be interested in reading a book called the child catchers and i know you and i had discussed that briefly before i'll have a link to it in the show notes all about um religious adoption particularly in the united states and north america thank you tatiana for joining us did you want to give us a a word actually about your your music or what you're doing oh. with this creative uh, side of your life too. I don't want to forget that. <laughs> yeah, sure. No worries. Um, actually, when I was on my sabbatical, a huge part of my processing was songwriting. And so I released an EP during that sabbatical called Safe at Home. And basically all three of the tracks on that album came out of processing my adoption trauma. And it's interesting though, those songs all kind of like they go through, I'm, I'm in pain. I'm feeling things, but Jesus is good. Thank you, Jesus, for being a good father. Like they're, they're all kind of still through a religious lens. Mm -hmm. Um, But then after I left the church, it was the same deal. I needed a space to process and songwriting was it. And so I started writing a couple of songs as I was leaving, as I was moving out of living in the pastor's basement. And um, anyway, wrote, wrote, I don't know, I think it's 12 tracks that are on the album, I believe. And they're a mix of the pain and the grief of leaving the church to kind of like a big fuck you to leaving the church <laughs> to like um, what it feels like to fall in love um, for the first time, there's there's kind of like this broad range of of what's happening, but it's a mix of alternative and indie, and some pop is in there. It's it's quite the the range of music, um, but I'm I'm really proud of that album in the best way to summarize like everything I've said uh, in this podcast so far. It would be like I I would tell you to go listen to that album because that kind of like beautifully sums everything up. And so it's called Second Half, um, and my artist name is Tot T O T, and you can find that on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you you choose to listen to music. Very cool. Wow. Thank you so much. Okay. I'm going to be including links in the, in the show notes. Thanks again for joining today. It was a real pleasure getting to know you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks everyone for tuning in again to the Divorcing uh, Religion podcast. And I will remind you that you can reach out to me through my website, divorcing-religion.com. I do work one-on-one with clients recovering from religious trauma. And of course, uh, coming up in October, I'll be hosting again the Conference on Religious Trauma. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Take care.